With the end of COP26, the climate change conference held every November is over for another year. I guess that means Christmas is coming. Thousands of journalists have now left Glasgow, along with thousands of demonstrators and tens of thousands of negotiators from 197 countries. This is a Rudd Pedersen Climate Talks podcast, and we're going to toss around some thoughts about the event and about what it's accomplished, if anything, and about what needs to be done to curb global heating. I'm Chris Davis, a senior advisor with Rudd Pedersen Public Affairs in Brussels and a former member of the European Parliament's Environment Committee. And with me are two of my fellow senior advisors, both with impressive experience gained in the European Commission. Peter Viz is the man who wrote the EU emissions trading system, or the first draft at any rate. He's also a former chef de cabinet to two European commissioners. And Megan Richards, 27 years with the commission and a former director of energy policy. Success or failure in Glasgow? All depends on your perspective, doesn't it? If you're Boris Johnson, of course it's a success. We've kept alive the possibility of restraining heating to 1.5 degrees. If you're Greta Thunberg, it was all blah, blah, and the whole thing's a complete fiasco. Well, Peter, let me come to you first. If it really was a failure, well, how would you judge a complete failure? Um, well, it's difficult to say that any COP would be a complete failure because COPs produce decisions and there will always be decisions taken at COPs. So it really hangs upon what is in those decisions because the idea of there never being a decision at all is, is really just very unlikely. Um, even, even in the Copenhagen COP, there were decisions made, uh, yet it was perceived as being a failure. It, Copenhagen was interesting because it, the COP it was number 15, I think. It, it, it also sowed the seeds of what subsequently became the Paris Agreement. And now we're six years on from Paris, and we still hadn't finished the rule book, the sort of implementing provisions of the Paris Agreement, which are much more voluminous than the Paris Agreement itself. And the COP did at least succeed in closing the negotiations on that rule book, which I think is a success. It's the third time part of that rule book had been uh, attempted to be agreed. And, and on the third time, it proved to be lucky. Peter, Peter um, you say that it's not a failure in so much as the process continues. I mean, I suppose a complete failure would be if, I don't know, China was to walk away. Yes, I think when, I, to be honest, it, it, when the US withdrew from the Paris Agreement, it was a failure in a sense, um, because the US is the second biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. Fortunately, it's rejoined. If ever China were to do the same, Yes, the system would be failing, there's no doubt. But there are people who say that the UN system as a whole is failing because this is, after all, it was the 26th COP. And if you look at the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, it just keeps going up. And, and there's no levelling off even of the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So it seems to be having little effect after 26 years. That is Except the real worry. Yeah. Can Megan, I jump on, in there just for a second? I, I take absolutely what you say, Peter. On the other hand, without the COPs and without the intervention of the member states of the Union, United Nations, and the interest of people all around the world, 
the rise in carbon emissions and the rise in global global warming without this these efforts would have been even worse i think and we would have seen a much higher rise in temperature so these efforts have had some successes they have had an impact and we all know that developing countries and emerging markets will need 3 to 5 times more energy uh, for their own developments in the future so there has been progress it's not what gretchenberg would like <laughs> it's not what many other people would like but but it's there in some ways megan you're not painting the most optimistic picture about the future if a conference one of these conferences were to be judged an absolutely outstanding success how would you do that how how, how would you ju- make that judgment what would it have to have achieved oh, well it would have had to achieve a clear understanding that every country in participating would reduce its emissions dramatically it would take immediate action they would all commit to 1.5% maximum temperature rise they would all have joined the methane agreement they would have all have joined the deforestation agreement they would all have agreed to phase out coal not to phase down unabated coal etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think it's quite clear what would have been an outstanding success but we have to be practical as well uh, many of these countries are in difficult situations and that's not to say that they don't want to do some of these things their own electorates when they're elected um have interest in making sure they have clean air i mean if you think about delhi or beijing those cities alone have made progress despite the fact that delhi is still one of the worst polluted cities in the world if not the most polluted yes, they have right. made progress they've made a lot of changes all those little tuktuks that used to run on diesel now run on lng beijing cut uh, closed all its um coal burning plants i happened to be there a couple of days after that happened the sky suddenly turned blue which is quite unusual for beijing so you know this progress is being made it's it's not as fast as we would like but there on it's progress well, i i count on everyone else to help industry well, I, consumers etc different estimates so boris johnson as i mentioned says we've kept on track to 1.5 degrees others say currently on current policies where we're heading for 2.4 or even 2.77 degrees and it's said that the difference between an ice age and and the current situation is only 2 degrees and you said the dramatic weather chance dramatic climate changes can take place over 1 or or 2 degrees but i remember talking at a previous cop to someone from the uh, ipcc intergovernmental panel on climate change and he said i asked him all these figures are about between now and the end of this century what happens if we don't get it under control by then he says well we just carry on getting warmer and warmer until the earth boils like venus i don't know about it boiling like venus but i mean the progress at the moment despite the examples you have just given are infinitely slow peter yeah i think how do we speed problem, it up the problem is that you can't judge a cop as being a success until you've seen 20 years on that it has resulted in action that has reduced emissions and that on a global scale has not yet been demonstrated it's true that some jurisdictions including the european union have reduced their emissions since 1990 and and that will continue i'm sure and the other jurisdictions are trying to do the same but it's not easy and that's the point that uh, secretary general of the un made is that signing these uh, pledges making agreements is the easy bit and putting the policies in place uh, to execute those dis- agreements that that's the hard bit politically and that's where we get stuck 
um, generally speaking. Yeah, the difficulty is, bring, is for any politician is not simply finding the right policies to, to, to introduce and, and weighing up the costs, but whether or not they can keep their electorate with them. And that applies even in Russia it, oh, and, 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 uh, and China, which are hardly democracies, because they've got to keep, somehow they've got to keep public opinion with them. I yeah. just wondered, our papers have been full of the climate change conference. Megan, have we any idea what the papers in Russia have been saying or in China? Are they pay, do, they, do they pay the same sort of attention to these events? Apparently not. I mean, I'm, I'm not following directly the, either the Russian or the Chinese newspapers on a daily basis, but I understand that both in Russia and in China, there's a lot less discussion of this, partly because the Russian government in some ways is apparently saying climate change is not so bad for us. We'll be able to have a Northwest Passage. We'll be able to uh, expand our oil and gas uh, production. We'll be able to do all sorts of Things. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm painting a very simplistic picture. Obviously, there are air, parts of Russia that are going to suffer dramatically from climate change as well, and they have an interest in making sure climate change is abated and stopped. But the same in China. Since Xi Jinping wasn't there physically, there has been less uh, talk in the media in China about this. And so it's, it's, it, I think it is really a question of perspective. Boris Johnson, of course, will say this is a success. Whether it had been or not, I'm sure Boris Johnson would have said this was a great success. He had to say that. I mean, Alok Sharma said it is a success, but the pulse of the success is weak. The pulse of 1.5 is weak. And that, I think, is, it was a really good message. And all the demonstrators that uh, criticise, well, European politicians, I suppose, as, uh, above all, I mean, would they get away with it in China or Russia? I mean, it seems to me that uh, European politicians, and maybe that's because I'm a former European politician myself, get a, get a rough ride from some of our own NGOs because it's easy to attack us because you know, we, we, we have free speech and free press and we allow demonstrators. You don't allow that in, uh, in some other countries across the globe. That's true. We need leadership from all the leaders across the world to explain to the people how important climate change is because it's difficult for anyone to really understand how a temperature increase as small as two degrees centigrade can change the world. Uh, it's, it, you need to have some sort of scientific uh, background to understand and few of us have that scientific knowledge, but we do have a process, international process, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that is stuffed with the world's best scientists and they can explain it and do explain it as being a really serious threat to our well-being and our but, well-being and everyone else in the world including the russians and including the chinese uh, so in the end this is a problem that will impact everybody the chinese government needs to keep its power and therefore has to have a certain degree of control over its population which if it ever were to disagree strongly with it could you know create all sorts of upset ultimately um so i think there is an element whereby we're all in this together but for a fact if the the fact that the chinese and russian leaders did not show up at the cop shows it wasn't the high level event that warranted their moving over you know coming over for a few days as other leaders did and that's already a signal that for them 
perhaps it wasn't the number one priority that uh, that it perhaps should have been. Except that, and I agree on the political aspects and the governmental aspects, but if you think about what China is doing, China has made more investments in solar than any other country. It's had huge investments in solar. It's dramatically increased its solar energy capacity. It's not a huge oil and gas producer as Russia is. Um, and so it recognizes that it has to do more. It has to find better energy security solutions. So it is doing this. And as you know, Xi Jinping didn't even go to the big uh, biodiversity conference that took place in China. So quite frankly, whether he showed up or not, for me is not the most important aspect. And I'm not dismissing the importance of, of leaders coming to COP, but the COP is governments. And governments, of course, have an important regulatory, legislative role in pushing ambition and pushing targets. But industry and individuals and business also have a huge role. And if you look at the costs of, for example, solar and wind energy, just in the last 15 years, the costs have come down dramatically. That's partly because of legislative interest. It's partly because of regulatory pull. It's partly because new innovative companies have come onto the scene, recognized how useful it is. Of course, there were also some subsidies that helped push this. But now I can't think of a single country in the world where you don't have some wind, some uh, solar, some hydro, some geothermal potential. Well, look, and Megan, you could Megan, invest, make those investments. It's good. It's good to hear you being positive. But if you look at some of the agreements that came out, perhaps uh, the, the incidental achievements. But one of them, for example, was the Declaration on Forests. Uh, and it's good that countries are committing themselves to stopping deforestation, which of course is a major cause of uh, of global warming and the release of of emissions. But then you cannot but be cynical. When you look, for example, at uh, the commitment from Brazil saying that it only will stop illegal deforestation. And yet much, much of the destruction of the, the rainforest in the Amazon is theoretically legal. It's authorised by the government. So how can you not be cynical when you see that? As, so long as Bolsonaro is still uh, leading Brazil, then the destruction of the Amazon rainforest will continue. But then, as you say, the young activists have to get out and vote and make sure they vote for what they claim is important and what we all think is important. Peter, looking at the other way around, let us assume, for example, that Prime Minister Modi in India is not cynical, but he faces a horrendous problem. How is a very, very coal dependent economy? Um, there's a billion people here. He has no resources of natural gas that we know of to, 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 to fall back on, to make a, a quick gain mm. as was accomplished in the, in the UK from the switch from coal to, coal to gas. And at the same time, his people as a whole only emit a tenth of the global warming emissions that the average American citizen emits. How yeah. on earth, what does he do? Well, he's been a key player at this COP, uh, Modi, um, because in, before the COP, uh, most big countries had made a increased pledge, but India had not. But then he did make such a pledge to be climate neutral in 2070 uh, at the COP. So that was one positive move. Perhaps it was too far away, 2070, but it, it was made, which it hasn't been made before. A commitment was made. That's, that's quite remarkable. But he was also blamed for 
instigating this watering down of the coal phase out at the very last, in the last hours of the COP. So he was a little bit the villain as well, who uh, stood in the way of a more ambitious outcome. But indeed, India has the dilemma that every country has. It's going to be very difficult to implement policies, but they do have, given that where they're starting from, which was with a high coal use, it's going to have to be something that's done over time. And it has been agreed that they will phase down or they will make their best efforts to phase down the use of coal. And what India has, uh, and indeed it's part of their commitment, is to expand renewables. They have an enormous potential for renewables. So I think in practice, if you look behind the rhetoric, there aren't many coal fire stations being built in India. And yet there is an enormous expansion of renewable energy. That, I think, has a certain, there's a certain optimism in built into that. I think coal is not now the fuel of choice because of quality, air quality problems and other things. Um, it's, it's quite often not, not the most cost effective source of energy. Uh, and it's only used, if you like, because it, it is reliable round the clock and it doesn't stop producing energy at night uh, as solar might do. But it's something that they might have to sort of scale back over mm-hmm. time. I think that's inbuilt into the agreement in, that was reached in Glasgow. And I think India is a key player. On a more domestic level, it was interesting to see that Poland also signed up to the commitment to, uh, yeah. to phase yeah. down coal. Tell Indeed. me, um, Peter, you're a former chef de cabinet to a transport commissioner. Megan, you're a former head of, of uh, policy development in, in, in DG Energy. So let me ask you about the, the electrification of cars issue. And I was fascinated to find, to hear that, BMW and Volkswagen had not signed this, you know, commitment to to phase out, phase out petrol and diesel cars within, I don't think it was twenty thirty five, was it? I mean, I thought I thought VW and BMW, I thought all the, the I thought the entire German car industry was really geared up to electrification now. Megan, what what's happened there? They are geared up to electrification. There's no question about that. But I think they still have hopes that low carbon alternative fuels will be available and they'll still be able to keep some internal combustion engine vehicles on the road, A. And B, I think for them, full complete electrification for them is perhaps a little bit later rather than 2035. I'm not condoning their position, but I think that's their their vision. Peter? I think electrified cars, something that we will envisage in Europe, you know, there will be no more internal combustion engines sold after 2035 if we adopt the commission's proposal. However, other parts of the world are not going to electrify as quickly as Europe is, first of all, and these car producers want to produce cars for global markets. Secondly, there are going to be places in some circumstances where electrification is difficult, uh, mountainous, remote, regional areas that uh, where it just might be too expensive to put the infrastructure for electric charging. So, I mean, I think it's another transition. We're talking about a process of complete transformation of the economy in so many respects, but cars is a case in point. But, and there can be early movers and there can be people who gain from that transition, producers like Tesla and other electric vehicle producers who are just betting on the electric scenario. But there's also going to be a long tail of legacy technologies that are still in use and indeed perhaps 
appropriately in use? I mean, let's be honest, when is Africa going to have the resources to electrify? Well, well indeed, indeed. You just you, we, we talk about the need for more charging points in Europe as the, as the solution to the, uh, yeah. the potential problem. <laughs> And then you think of Africa. You think how 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 do you supply charging points in Lagos? I'm not, I, I don't know how they supply there, in Rwanda. Let's, in, or, or, there or, is a that, and that's a that's a concentrate. Lagos was a, con a massive concentration of people. But then the other, as as you quite rightly say, the other point point about something like Africa was huge distances. Yeah, you don't want to be running out of fuel okay. in some places. Let's be honest. Even in America, even in the in the Europe, there are some places so, you just don't want to be caught there on a cold night um, in the north of Finland without charging capability. So maybe that resolution that was put together, uh, probably by the Brits, I suspect, was just too Anglo-centric or Eurocentric yes. without without thinking of the realities of of, uh, of the experience of Arguably, many people across the it world. Was, it was a metropolitan think, that, think yeah. piece in that in an urban area, you can imagine a fully electrified car fleet. Uh, outside in rural areas, it, it's going to take longer. Even even here in Europe. Tell me. But then there's hydrogen as an alternative as well. I'm not saying that's the the solution, but that's there are other solutions to the internal combustion engine working on fossil fuels. Time is so short. Tell me, um, the European Union. We've often been seen as leaders here. Uh, I saw some commentaries saying, well, actually, the EU didn't seem to be playing a a leadership role at all at uh, at the COP26. Do you have any yes. feedback on I that? Saw, I saw how Franz Timmerman reacted to that when he was asked at the press conference. He, he, was, he absolutely refuted it and said that the EU was as engaged in the negotiations and with all other parties as ever. But what was one of the striking takeaways was that the carbon border adjustment mechanism that Europe has put on the table and intends to implement was not the subject of great controversy and, and oppositions in Glasgow. That, to some extent, that surprised me. I think it's a positive development. And I think it's thanks to the EU and particularly Franz Timmermans that there was an engagement was made with other parties explaining that the carbon border adjustment mechanism is actually designed to enable Europe to increase its climate ambition. That's what, what everyone wanted in Glasgow. So there wasn't a big pushback against it. And I thought that was an interesting fact. Um, well, it's interesting to hear you saying that because I know you've not been the, the greatest fan. Of absolutely. The, uh, I, I had to be <laughs> convinced. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I, I wondered that too. And I wondered, Meg, Megan, whether whether you're going to end up using this as, a, as an instrument more. And, well, first of all, it has to be introduced and it has to work and then it'll get refined and, and, and developed. But whether this is going to be a, a major tool that the European Union will use to try and drive forward progress in other countries. I think I think it has huge potential, and it's like the uh, emissions trading system. Everyone said it wasn't going to work. It was too big. It was too uh, expensive. It wasn't uh, adequate. You remember all the arguments. Now it it's been well. adopted by many other by many other uh, countries. It's become, let's say, the standard bearer. Uh, and uh, I think uh, the carbon border adjustment mechanism has the same potential. And and other countries are talking about carbon border adjustment mechanisms, uh, they're talking about carbon pricing, carbon taxes, etc. So I think it's all part of the conversation, as the Americans would say. Well, that's fascinating, because I remember when President Sarkozy introduced the idea, I think 2006, 2007, it got shot down in flames. Yeah, I know. And, and I, I probably subscribe to that shooting down in flames. What has convinced me, Chris, is this. 
and that is that this multilateral process that is all based on consensus and where these pledges are made and there is actually no way of ensuring that countries keep their pledges indeed if they want to they can just leave the paris agreement without consequence that's a problem and to me it's a problem that we can't just pretend isn't there and so the carbon border adjustment mechanism is saying we're going to tax imports uh, according to their carbon content uh, unless you're also being ambitious on climate change. So there will, for the first time ever, be a penalty for those who are free riding. And at the moment, there is no such penalty. So, you know, you can pretend you're going to be net zero by 2050 and everyone will be applauding. But that's where it stops. So I think the carbon border adjustment mechanism, as Megan has said, is extremely important uh, and it will come about in time. And it's the modalities of it that have to be worked out. And we have to talk to people and other countries in particular that might introduce similar mechanisms. And we can, you know, exempt each the flow of goods between those two jurisdictions. But people who are outside, who are not playing the, the game of ambition on climate change, there will be a penalty for that. A consequence. And I think that's what, if you like, we haven't had until now. And it, we need it. Yeah. Megan, you've been the voice, the most positive voice um, during the course of this uh, podcast. I just wondered, you must be frustrated, though. I mean, we can't, the, the, the scale of the problem is so great. The pace of progress is so slow by comparison. This whole COP procedure, I mean, is, is there a way of improving it? I mean, we need to do more and more quickly couldn't agree with you more, but I don't think the solution is in the COP. The COP is one element. The COP is not going to save all our problems. What's going to save our problems and our issues is industry, business, individuals, the force of public opinion, and costs. The market is going to, not the market alone, obviously, but the market, everyone working together is going to solve this problem. So changing the COP process or making the COP process different is not going to solve our problems. I have great optimism and faith in business, industry, and individuals and consumer choice. This is where we have to make changes. And people in the West and the industrialized world have to also play their part. We have been the beneficiaries of this industrial revolution over the last 100, is it 200 years probably now. So we have to help make changes. And that doesn't just mean hand money to developing countries, although that helps and that should be part of it. We also have to adjust the way we live and work. We have to use heat pumps. We have to buy electric cars. We have to reduce the amount of meat we use. We have to fly less frequently, which doesn't mean we have to move less frequently, uh, etc. So everyone will participate. And, and I think, as I, as I said at the beginning, the costs of solar and wind energy have come down dramatically over the last 15 years. We've seen this in innovation. We've seen the technological changes. We've seen the digitalization of electric uh, systems. We'll see, I hope, in the methane reduction, the use of satellites to identify where methane leaks are coming from. We have all sorts of new technologies that make the energy systems much more efficient, much more effective, much more practical, and, and uh, will help to, to roll these things out also in developing countries and emerging markets. I, I mean, if you think also about carbon capture, this is another area where the technology has been around for many years, but costs are coming down. And so we have to move quickly. We have to rapidly reduce the emissions that we're making. But we know that developing countries and emerging markets need three to five times more energy than they're using now 
in the future. That means if they use traditional sources, there will be massive increases in emissions. So we have to find new and better ways to do this. And I, I'm convinced that technology innovation and regulatory pull uh, legislation will, will help us in that direction. Megan, you, Megan, your words bring a smile to my face. It makes it, the optimism is fantastic. And, and uh, you know, I, I shall sleep better at night having, having heard you. But, we'll uh, come back in 20 years and see if I was right. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, at the moment, Peter, the, despite Megan's optimism, emissions continue to increase year yes. after year. It's not, it's not a matter of how quickly we're reducing them. They're still yeah. increasing. Absolutely. So, so, so are you looking forward to next year's COP or is there a better way of achieving progress? Look, I think the COP process is the one we've got and we must make it work. And no one actually can think of a better way. I think this, the carbon border adjustment mechanism is one element of penalising the free riders that might be more widely used and could be built within the COP structures. The thing is, the next COPs should focus more on 2030 because it's easy to make pledges for 2050 because you can basically do nothing today and promise it for tomorrow. In 2030, the timescale is much closer. The policies need to be put in place today to have any effect in 2030. So I think the decision that was taken in Glasgow to revisit and strengthen the 2030 targets and have a look at those at the next COP is something that is for the good because we we must get uh, we must be doing things sooner than 2050 we must start absolutely now the european union is doing that but i think it's a global exercise and the 2030 timescale is much more near term much more impactful and indeed uh, it, it's a good focus to have on for the next copy that's an advance shape. that was Yes, sorry to jump in, Peter, but that's an advance that was made also at COP26. That revisiting would have normally yes. been in 2025. Now it's going to be revisited in 2022. So, well, thank well, you very bits much. Bits and pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Small thank, steps, thank baby steps. <laughs> baby steps. Well, uh, yeah, baby steps are not sufficient. Time is so, so short. Anyway, on that note, that note of optimism, yes, again, from, from, from Megan. Just let me say thank you very much to Megan, who's a former... Director of Energy Policy with DG Energy, the European Commission, from Peter Viz, the former chef de cabinet to a transport commissioner and a climate commissioner. And from myself, that's Chris Davis, a former member of the European Parliament. All of us senior advisors with Rud Pedersen. And you've been listening to this special edition of Climate Talks. And I suppose the next COP27 uh, is going to take place in Egypt. So I look yep. forward to talking with you all again next year.